This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Oracle, a software company and giant in the tech industry, is no stranger to make-or-break moments. For instance, back in 1990, they were caught misrepresenting their revenues, a mistake that would cost them millions of dollars and cost many employees their jobs. And in 2001, co-founder Larry Ellison was faced with a lawsuit for potential insider trading after he and his CFO sold off Oracle stock just weeks before the company's quarterly earnings were announced. There are multiple times Oracle has risen above the brink to maintain success whether due to questionable choices or unforeseeable circumstance. But maybe the most fantastic story of how Oracle has risen above the brink is the story of its creation. And how Larry Ellison overcame poverty, hardships, and naysayers to found the second most successful software company in the world. Hi, I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Ariel Kasten. And this is The Brink, a podcast that's all about the make-or-break moments that have defined success or failure for a company. And we're going to talk all about Oracle today, the enormous software company, the business-to-business enterprise, and the founder, Larry Ellison, who has something of a reputation for flamboyance, let's say. Uh, uh, that's a good way to put it, Jonathan. Devil may care attitude. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, a come at me world, I got you, bro. <laughs> a little uh, unapologetic. Yeah, a little a little rock star in the form of a, a software engineer. Uh, he's, a, he's a really interesting story. He is. And partially because as I was researching this, I found a lot of conflicting information, maybe not on the big points, but on little details. Yeah, which tells you that perhaps the story has changed with the telling every now and again. You know. It's, yeah, sometimes we see this, right? We'll, we'll go back and we'll start looking. And it also depends upon who is it that's chronicling the story, right? Yeah. So sometimes you get it from the person themselves. Uh, sometimes that's the most reliable source. Sometimes it can be less reliable. Larry Ellison's a guy who's been known to 
Embellish? Embellish. Use maybe some extravagant wordplay, perhaps, we'll say. So we're going to talk really about not just the company, but the personality attached to that company, because he really does have a remarkable story. It's almost akin to what you would see for the origin of a superhero, like the the childhood superhero story. Yeah, yeah. For instance, he was born to a single mom. She was only 19 at the time uh, in New York in 1944, and he never knew his biological dad. Right. And he only met his his mother much later on. Uh, I mean, he was he was still a baby when he and his mom parted ways. He didn't meet her again till he was an adult. So for a long time, he didn't even realize that his biological mother was someone other than the person who raised him. Yeah, I don't think he knew he was adopted till he was 12 years old. Yeah. The reason why she gave him up, she she actually gave him to the care of her aunt and uncle uh, was that he got sick. He he caught pneumonia when he was just nine months old. She was 19, unmarried, just mm-hmm. not not in a position to be able to care for him. And so she ended up giving him over to the care of Lillian and Louie Ellison, uh, her aunt and uncle. Yes. Um, and Lily was a very good, very loving uh, adoptive mother. Larry Ellison says that his adoptive father was less so. Yeah, Louie essentially, according to Larry Ellison, said that uh, Larry was uh, was no good, that he was yeah. never going to amount to anything. Yeah, um, and you know, Louie Ellison was in real estate. He made a lot of money, and then during the Great Depression, he lost it all. So maybe he was just a really unhappy man. Could have been very bitter because of yes. losing that fortune. And uh, was pretty much all about undermining Larry's confidence, at least according, again, to Larry Larry. Ellison's tale of his childhood. And so Larry goes on. He goes to school. He's smart, but not like the kind of student who really applies himself. He knows his math and he knows his science. He's pretty good at it. But um, he also has trouble with authority figures, and that's what school is full of. Yeah, it turns out that if you've, I guess— you know, when you get a home life where you're being undermined by the person that you assume is your dad uh, over and over again, maybe authority is something you bristle at after yeah, a while. Yeah, you're trying to gain some control over your own fortune. But he gets through high school and then he goes on to college where obviously he just coasts through his classes and graduates with uh, honors, right? That is not right. No, uh, he went to University of Illinois and he was named Science Student of the Year, but then he dropped out. But he did so because he suffered a tragedy. Yeah, his adoptive mother passed away uh, two years after he started college. So so he leaves because the woman he identifies as his mother, the woman who raised him, has passed away. Yeah, I mean, I I can't personally really blame him for that. No, I mean, that's a truly traumatic event. And he would try to make another go at it. It wasn't like he just dropped out of college and that was it. He did try. He re-enrolled, but in a different school. Yeah, he went to University of Chicago, and then he dropped out after one semester. And I don't think it's because his adoptive mother died again. No, no. It turns out that that's a one-time only thing. Yeah. Then, unless unless she's a zombie. No. As far as I know, (laughs) even in the craziest of Larry Ellison's backstories— I never heard of zombie adopted mom. Fair enough. He then moved to California, which is the place you got to be. Yeah, yeah, apparently. He started looking around for a job and he kind of was doing pretty much any job he could he could find in those early, early days. He worked at places like Fireman's Fund and Wells Fargo, where he did technical work and then a brief stint as a programmer at Omdahl. Now, what's interesting is that he didn't, 
study computer science in college. He didn't learn to program in school so much. He had, you know, maybe some familiarity with it, but he really started looking into that once he had left school. And he did it by just sort of grabbing books on the subject, reading and studying about them, and then kind of learning from there. Programming for dummies. Yeah, before there was such a thing. But essentially, yeah, this is the early days of computer programming in a lot of ways, right? Like Mm -hmm. we're talking about an era where you were starting to see computers emerge out of high-tech companies and universities and finally make their way into enterprise, into businesses. Uh, This is really before the era of personal computers. They were still really big. Yeah, at that time, they were still pretty big. And so he was teaching himself how to program from various books. So it wasn't like he was flying by the seat of his pants. He he knew what he was doing, but he came at it from a very obtuse angle. So then he started at a company called Ampex Corporation in 1973, which was in the business of making generators and electric motors. Now, by the 70s, by the time he started there, wasn't really working on generators and electric motors anymore. They were working on making multi-track tapes, like, you know, eight-track tapes. Largely for data recording, not not for putting... You know, John Denver's greatest hits on him. Instead of that Rocky Mountain High, I mean, you'd be... You can overlap the information, Jonathan. Well, this is more about looking at, you know, like computer data, like storing computer information to magnetic tape. Yeah. In fact, Ampex was contracted by the CIA to create a large terabit mass storage system on tapes. So that's kind of what they were doing. Yeah. So and this would also mark the beginning of Ellison's love affair with working relationship with the CIA, <laughs> which would become an important component in the formation of Oracle. Yes. Uh, so Ellison would start to build databases for Ampex. Now, that also is very important. So there may be listeners out there who said, I've heard the name Oracle. I don't know what they do. You know, there's a lot of people who say that. Yeah. I mean, even for a long time, I, I cover technology for a living and and I didn't have a whole lot of crossover with Oracle. It was yeah. a name that I was always familiar with. So when they started off, Oracle was really about making databases. And mm-hmm. the, again, this is in an era before you had spreadsheet programs or database programs that are all throughout software suites these days. This was before all that happened. Yeah. And so you needed to have essentially proprietary databases created. So these were all kind of made from scratch at the time. Yeah, like a one-off, I need you to make this for me, come make it for me. Right. It may be like that organization I just worked with, they needed something that was going to manage supply chains and uh, sales and shipping. But this other one has nothing to do with sales. It's all about production. So it's a similar thing, but it's going to need a different implementation. There weren't any like one-stop shops for that stuff. You had to have it built for you. So that's kind of what he specialized in. And that's really what Oracle specialized in when it first started was in database uh, design and uh, implementation. Now, after that, Oracle would expand to lots of other yeah. enterprise stuff, essentially creating all the systems that allow big companies to do all the behind-the-scenes work. The way that you would keep track of all the different various moving parts of a big company That's what Oracle does. They create that these days. Yeah, but when they started growing, they started off with this one solution they made specifically for the CIA and adjusting it instead of creating something completely new for everybody. They could adapt what they had done for other implementations. We'll talk more about that right after this quick break. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. 
So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. While he was at Ampex and working on these database projects, he met two people who would end up being his co-founders for Oracle. In fact, depending upon the version of the story of Oracle you read, they're technically the co-founders, and then Ellison came on shortly thereafter. This is one of those places where you get some conflicting information. So there was uh, Robert Bob Nimrod Miner and Ed Oates. Those were the other uh, Ampex employees who would become co-founders of Oracle, and they both graduated with degrees in mathematics. Yeah, so they did have the degree. Right. Where Larry Ellison might have had a little more chutzpah. Yeah. No, Ellison definitely comes across as sort of, like, if I were to compare him to some other iconic businessman, Mm -hmm. I would say that Ellison is in many ways similar to Steve Jobs. And in fact, the two of them were very close friends. Yes. When Steve Jobs was still alive. They were very close friends. Steve Jobs uh, was the salesman for Apple more than anything else. He was the guy who was able to sell this idea of personal computers, whereas Steve Wozniak, the co-founder of Apple, was largely the guy who was actually building the systems. Ellison, he got his hands dirty. I mean, he was coding, but he was really more, uh, more adept at the handshaking and salesmanship side of things in many ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, But before Ed and Bob and Larry all created Oracle together, Larry did take a brief stint at another company. Um, He worked at a place called Precision Elements, Mm -hmm. which basically was another data storage company. Right. So he worked there. He was contracted out to work with this, or maybe Miner and, and Oates were Uh, But they were all working on similar projects, right? Again, as this database technology that was still coming into fruition in the Mm -hmm. mid-70s. Yeah, and about that time, some accounts say that Bob and Ed decided to start their own company and they invited Larry to join. Yeah, this would be uh, Software Development Laboratories, or Mm -hmm. SDL. And other accounts, Larry says that 
the company he was working for, Precision Elements, had more work than they could handle. And so he encouraged Bob and Ed to bid on some of their work. So then Bob and Ed formed this company as yes. contractors for the company that Ellison was But whose for. idea it was to form this company is a little up in the air. Yeah, it gets a little hard to determine based upon the multiple histories out yes. there. But no matter what... They do end up forming this company, the uh, SDL company, the Software mm-hmm. Development Laboratories. And one of, if not their very first clients, was the CIA. Yes. They needed a database for a secret project they were working on. Yeah. And this secret project had a code name, and that code name was... Oracle. Yeah. So it turns <laughs> out the name of the company actually comes out of, I kid you not... Actual spy stuff. Yes, which is kind of cool. Now and, and scary. We don't know what spy stuff exactly. Well, it's a database. I would imagine it's some form of way of keeping <laughs> track of people what the CIA think are baddies. Yes. Or at least people you should keep an eye on. I mean, granted, it could have easily just as been a database that the CIA used to keep track of their assets. Mm-hmm. I mean, it might have had nothing to do with keeping tabs on various individuals that they thought might be somewhat suspect. Yeah, Larry is a big advocate for having a massive database of all the law enforcement databases in the United States. Yeah, Ellison has often advocated for what some people might call more of a surveillance state. Yes. And that gets a little hairy. Whatever the case, we don't know what the Oracle project mm-hmm. really was ultimately, apart from the fact that it needed this database and Ellison thought the name was pretty cool. Around the same time, Ed Oates is reading up on some research that had been done previously. Mm-hmm. And it was about IBM and a language they had developed called SQL or SQL. Now, SQL was useful, but it hadn't really been rolled out for commercial practice yet. And it was allowing for a type of database called a relational database, which was a new way of thinking about organizing information. So you would say you have different points of data, and these different points have relations to one another. And a relational database would allow you to search based upon those relationships. You're no longer looking at just a cell. Now you're able to pull up a whole bunch of different information that all relates to whatever your query happens to be. It's a a pretty basic idea that is implemented widely these days. So it seems obvious on the face of it. But in the mid-70s, this was a brand new concept. Yeah. I'd imagine that this process would normally take a lot of time, but since these gentlemen were well-versed with databases, they were given two years to make this solution for the CIA, and it only took them one. But, you know, like you mentioned before, Bob Miner did a lot of the architecture. He was kind of the Wozniak of this first project. Yes. I think one of my favorite things about the official product Oracle would come out with, now that they'd done this project for the CIA, they were ready to take this database model and sell it as a product to companies. They go out to sell it to companies, but Ellison makes a suggestion that is a little weird, which is that let's call our software version two instead of version one. The logic behind that was any company that looks out there and sees a product and they see that it's labeled version one, that company is going to think, well, this is a brand new thing. It's Mm -hmm. totally untested. It's unproven. 
I'm not going to invest thousands of dollars in that. I don't want to pay to beta test. Yeah, I want something that has, has a proven track record. So Ellison yes. said, let's just call version one version two and fool everyone into thinking, oh, this is the refined product. And they bring on uh, another person to help them with development, Bruce Scott, uh, who a lot of times is referred to as the fourth co-founder of Oracle. Yeah. By the time that they get up to 1980, they started looking at uh, mini computing as in like the, the sort of the desktop computers now. They're looking yeah. at desktop computers. Because yeah. 1980, that's after Apple had gotten into the game. Commodore was creating yeah, personal I computers. I still have my Commodore 64. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Wow. And then you started seeing uh, IBM was about to launch the personal computer around this time. So this was a, a shot across the bow saying there's going to be a big change in computing coming up. It meant that companies that previously would not have been able to afford investing in computer systems because they were these huge, you know, $20,000 machines per machine, mm -hmm. they would now be able to go into these smaller versions, these Apple computers or the IBM PC and for a fraction of that cost, they could buy 10 machines. You know, so suddenly you started seeing a lot of companies say, maybe we can finally digitize our business. We can bring computers into this. And so Oracle, Larry Ellison in particular, says, these are markets we should target. We should yes. make sure we create products that can run on those computers because while well, we're never really going to be hitting the home user, mm -hmm. we'll be able to hit all those small to medium-sized businesses that are going to want to operate the same way as these bigger companies. So this was a, a kind of a sea change. This was Larry Ellison saying, we have to go after this group. And more than just a sea change in that sense, they also started programming in the C programming yes. language. But that's, you know, that's, that's yeah. me being, being silly with puns. No, it's very clever. And they finally officially changed the name of their company to Oracle in 1982. Yeah. By then they're running version 2.3, they start building their business, and it ends up being a pretty dramatic rise. They're, they're doing really well in those first few years. For example, Oracle split their stock 10 times. Mm -hmm. Now, here's how a stock split works, in case you aren't aware. Yes, uh, please explain it to me. Okay. In a stock split, company's board of directors says, all right, what we're going to do is we're going to take the number of outstanding stocks that are out there, and we're going to increase that number. So... I started off with 100 shares. All right, I'm going to double that. Now it's 200 shares. So, Ariel, if you had two shares of stock in my company, mm -hmm. now you would suddenly have four shares. Yay. But the value of each of those shares would be cut in half. Because so, you can't change the value of the company this yeah, way. Yeah. Otherwise, you would just be magically making a company more valuable every time you split the stock. However, by reducing the price point per share, you create more opportunities for small or mid-sized investors to buy shares in your in your company, which can stimulate even more growth. Yes. So by splitting 10 times, that meant Oracle was getting to a point where they were seeing their stock price grow, where they felt we need to split the stock so that we can reduce the price on a per share basis and improve liquidity. We have more to cover. But first, let's take a quick break. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. 
When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela E is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yemi's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know, that's right. <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. Now, you say... Yeah. You say that you cannot just magically decide how much your company is worth. Yeah. But. Yeah. Oracle kind of tried that. A couple times. A couple of times. And it got him into a little bit of trouble. Uh, So in 1990 and 1991, they misrepresented their revenues for three quarters in a row to bump up their stock prices. Right. That was the accusation. So Oracle says. All right, well, we've got a whole bunch of handshake agreements out there with companies. Mm -hmm. These companies said, we're going to buy your software. The actual deal hasn't happened yet. What was happening was that Oracle was posting these revenue figures that were not actually, you know, real because those sales had not all happened yet. They were possibly real. They were imaginative. They were imaginative. Um, But this isn't the only time that they kind of – Played a little fast and loose with numbers. Uh, In 2001, they actually kind of, uh, another accusation, got accused of insider trading. Yeah. The accusation is they knew that their company was not going to be worth as much once the quarterly earnings were announced. And so they went ahead and sold off a bunch of stock before it dropped. Yeah. That's not great. It is, uh, yeah, that is illegal. As it turns out, that whole mess would take years to reconcile. It got really ugly, but ultimately Ellison kind of got out of that. The Ellison's been involved in a few kind of notable, strange lawsuits. Yes. So there was a case where Ellison agreed to donate a large amount of money to a nonprofit charity as part of a settlement to get out of a accusation. And then he didn't. I was about to say that's really great to to build some goodwill up with your rectifying the issue, but I guess if there's no follow through. He said in 2005, he was going to make a $115 million donation to Harvard University, Harvard, for a uh, special medical center. And that made headlines. I mean, that was a huge announcement. But in 2006, he said, you know what? Never mind. I'm not going to make that $115 million donation I said I was going to make. And the reason he changed his mind is that the president of Harvard University had stepped down, and he was friends with Harvard University's president at the time. Mm -hmm. So this was sort of, I made that agreement when my buddy was running things, but now my buddy's not there, so I don't really want to do that anymore. Meanwhile, the the medical center had already started kind of doing what Oracle had done a decade earlier. They had started spending money they didn't have yet. They Mm -hmm. started making hires and allocating where that money was going to go because they thought it was coming in. Uh, which is a valuable lesson for everybody. Don't make plans to spend money you don't have yet. This is why so many people get in trouble with credit cards. 
It is. I mean, th- is. this was just on a exactly $115 million yeah. dollar scale. And uh, not to say that he hasn't been philanthropic. He has. But mm-hmm. Ellison has this reputation of being very outspoken, very opinionated, uh, very declarative in his statements. And then not his behavior has not always followed through with that. He was notorious about taking a very close approach to holding on to Oracle and determining what the company did, like almost a micromanaging approach? Yes. He resigned from being the CEO in 2014, but he is still very active in Oracle's future. Yes. He's the chairman of the company and reportedly he still takes a very, very close approach to handling Oracle's business. So he can't quite let go. Yeah. He ended up, uh, kind of handing the reins over to two people to be CEO, not mm-hmm. co-CEO. They, they aren't called co-CEO. No. Oracle has two CEOs. There's Mark Hurd and there's Safra Katz. And not very many people had known very much about her mm-hmm. before she became CEO. She was already an executive with yes. Oracle. It's not yes. like she came out of nowhere. But she was sort of thought of as kind of like Ellison's right-hand woman who was there to really make sure the stuff that Ellison wanted to happen would happen. Now, despite the fact that she kind of wasn't super well-known, she is eighth on Fortune's Most Powerful Women list. That position is a very powerful one. So Oracle, incredibly successful, even with the various problems, the legal problems it has had, right? Yeah, yeah. It has had a couple of big major ones that threaten the company. I mean, that scandal about uh, the revenue, the misrepresentation of revenue— A lot of people said, oh, this might be the downfall of this Mm -hmm. company. And Ellison had famously wanted his company to overtake Microsoft as the most powerful software company in the world. In 1986, if you had bought a single share of Oracle stock, it would have cost you 15 bucks. Then the the stock would split multiple times. By the time the stock was done with all those splits, that one share would have been multiplied into 324 shares. Mm -hmm. And then Oracle, I don't know what it's trading at at the time we're recording this, but when we were researching at one point, it was trading at $46 per share. Yeah. So you multiply that 324 times $46. Your $15 would have turned into $15,000. This is why while there have been some shenanigans Investors overall tend to be fairly happy with how Oracle has done things. Now, Oracle has, you know, gone down the list of Forbes top companies a little bit in the past few years, but they they do have really big plans to get to rise back up in the ranks. For instance, they're delving into AI. An AI sort of autonomous database approach could end up doing things like monitoring all this stuff, detecting trends that might indicate a problem before the problem is evident. Yes. Uh, it may automatically send messages to various managers saying, we've detected a problem in this section. That means we project that in X number of weeks, that problem is going to impact you. It's good to plan for that now before yeah. it happens. I wouldn't mind having some AI to help me minimize my mistakes. And, and, and I certainly don't have as nearly a complicated life as the various components no. of an enormous like global corporation. Yeah. So it's a very sophisticated approach. Yeah. Uh, I have some fun facts and things about Larry Ellison I wanted to tell you because I want to get your honest first-time reaction on (laughs) on record, on microphone. Well, I hope I don't disappoint. Not all of these are like super jaw-dropping things. I just kind of want to see what you think about them. So we both know that he's famous for being blunt and sometimes outrageous. Yes. Uh, But he once skipped a keynote 
at his company's own conference. As CEO, he skipped the keynote so that he could sail on Oracle Team USA's yacht in the America's Cup race. You know, I cannot fully blame him. Um, I would much rather sail an American Cup race than head a keynote. Okay, well, how about this? Did you come across information about Trashgate? Uh, probably. Trashgate was another controversy (laughs) in the history of Oracle. And uh, so this was when Oracle and Microsoft were really butting heads. I mean, Mm -hmm. Ellison has always wanted Oracle to overtake Microsoft. So they hired a company to go through Microsoft's garbage and look for any evidence of Microsoft executives up to some sort of shenanigans, particularly when it came to the antitrust lawsuits that Microsoft was the subject of around the late 90s. And so Larry Ellison, when he was confronted with this, saying, you hired a private detective agency to essentially go Mm -hmm. through a company's garbage? I mean, that that seems a little unethical in and of itself. He said, yeah, it's unethical, but it's not illegal. No, it's not. But to me, that says a lot about a person. Like somehow it being legal makes it okay. Like I tend to go for the ethical unethical as being the guide of whether Mm -hmm. something's okay or not. Uh, You know that Larry Ellison owns one of the Hawaiian islands? I did not. Yep. He bought Lanaya. Okay. It's one of the small ones. Technically, he owns like 90-something percent of it, like almost all of the island. He once sued an entire city. He sued San Jose in 2000. Do you know why he sued San Jose in 2000? For giggles? Nope. It was, well, I don't know. I guess <laughs> I guess ultimately kind of. So Ellison's also a pilot, and he also has several private planes, including two military jets. He owns two military jets. <laughs> he likes to go where he wants to go when he wants to go there. But San Jose has a noise ordinance. Mm-hmm. And that noise ordinance says that aircraft above a certain size should not be allowed to fly in or out of San Jose after a certain time. Seems and- reasonable. Ellison didn't think so. He took the city to court and said that he, his very large, very private plane should be allowed to take off and land at night. And that's it. It should be. And Judge Jeremy Fogel said, for you, I'll make an exception. Really? So he didn't change the law. The law still stands, but Larry Ellison is exempt from it. Well, at least now when people get woken up by airplane noises, they can go, Larry, and shake their fist that's at the sky. Uh, My favorite book about Larry Ellison, my favorite is because the title is The Difference Between God and Larry Ellison. God Doesn't Think He's Larry Ellison. I probably shouldn't say my thoughts on that one. I was hoping the book name would be uh, Larry Ellison Picked a Peck of Private Planes. Not just private planes. You know what else he picked a peck of? What? According to the author of that book, Ellison would date as many as three Oracle employees simultaneously. Oh, He's also in one of the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. Is he? Yes. He and Elon Musk are both in Iron Man 2. Yeah. They're two of the the big wigs at the the big meeting. And some say that Robert Downey Jr.'s portrayal of Tony Stark, a.k.a. Iron Man, is based in part off Larry Ellison. I can see that. I can Um, totally believe that. Very colorful individual. Um, He likes to wear all of the colors. Yes. (laughs) He is a remarkable person in many ways. I, like, he's so complicated. Like, in some ways, it's incredibly inspiring to come mm-hmm. from a background 
where he did not know his parents, never knew his father. And 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 the people who were raising him were like, no, you're not going to make it. You're not. Or at least his, his, his adoptive his dad, dad was. You're not going to do anything good. And, and dropping out of college mm-hmm. twice and then becoming essentially a self-made computer programmer and then going on to co-found the second most valuable software company in the world. Uh, that's an amazing story. It is. It's also complicated by the fact that he comes across as a Tony Stark kind of guy. Yes. Where he seems to project this feeling of being the most competent, confident, and intelligent person in the room. Mm-hmm. Like that, at least that's his own perception of himself. Yes. According to the portrayals I've read of him. I mean, but regardless, he doesn't just talk a big game. He plays a big game. Oh, yeah. No, he brings he's, it. He's very successful. So that is really inspiring. So I would have to say, like, for for us, when we talk about the brink and that moment, uh, really, this one comes all the way back to Ellison just deciding to go after that software space super mm-hmm. hard. You know, keep in mind, Microsoft was founded in the mid-70s. They had a head start and uh, a different focus than the yeah. database business that Oracle was after. And Larry Ellison didn't care about that. He just kept on pushing and still does to this day. So interesting guy. I am curious to see how Oracle goes while Larry Ellison maybe takes a further step away from the company. Eventually, Mm -hmm. he's going to have to. Yeah, yeah. And what will happen to the company after that? But a fascinating company and a fascinating person behind it. Obviously, the other co-founders of Oracle, also very important, but both of them left in the 80s and 90s. And Ellison stuck with it the whole way. And by all accounts, people said Oracle was really Ellison's company when you get down to it. So another person who has really made their stamp. I think Larry Ellison is going to be another one of those figures where 20 years in the future, people will say, whenever Oracle makes a big move, how would Larry have handled this? And it probably would have been on a private plane with a whole lot of very expensive champagne. Towing a yacht. (laughs) Towing a yacht. I think you're right. I think it's a private plane towing a yacht and, and him saying, I'm going to go race boats. Yes. If you want to hear more technical details, there are some episodes about Oracle over on the show Tech Stuff that I host. They did a three-part series over there. So I go more into the technical detail of the company on that side. But uh, we really just wanted to focus on kind of the fun stuff here. We are going to wrap this up. So I have been Jonathan Strickland. And I have been Ariel Kasten. Bye, y'all. If you would like to learn more about what we've talked about, as well as keep track of all of our episodes, make sure you visit our website at thebrinkpodcast.show. Or you can email us at feedback at thebrinkpodcast.show. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council.